We are in a series called Divine Community, where we talk about practices in the church. We were talking about the nature of the church, what the church is, and what the church does. The first week when we got together, we began discussing what the church isn't, and we talked about things, the common mistakes made about what the church uh, is, where people get confused on things. And we talked about what the church is. The church is the ecclesia, the gathering of the called out ones. That's who we are in Jesus Christ as we get together here today. The called out ones. You are part of a select group. Amen? Man, what a wonderful thing. When we talked last week, for those of you who tuned in, uh, we talked on authority in the church and what authority looks like in the church. And it is radically different than the authorities we see in the world where people exert their power over one another. In the church, the authority structure is set up so that there are elders and there are deacons. Does anyone remember what deacon means? Servant, that's correct. Yeah, servant. So when you hear the word deacon, think servant. We have these elders who are old men. They are overseers. They are shepherds. And they're meant to, to tend to the flock, care for the flock. And then we have deacons, these overseers, these servant leaders who are in the church. Sometimes you might hear of them as ministry team leaders or they're people who are just taking a role, taking a hand, getting things done. Servant leaders. This week, we're going to be discussing a community of practices. We're going to be looking at some of the details of what the first church did. This week, I joined a uh, kind of a, a train of people exiting Facebook. I don't know if you've noticed that, but a lot of people are kind of moving off of Facebook because of just a lot of the, the information control and active suppression of information that they're engaged in. And so I, I got on a new um, uh, social media service called MeWe, and one of the first things that happened is they began asking me questions, and the question that comes out first is, what do you do? Now think about how weird of a question that is. What do you do? Well, I do a lot of things. I mean, there are lots of things that I do, but what is someone asking when they ask, what do you do? Typically career, right? I mean, it's, it's what do you do for a living, or what do you do as your job? Now, I want you to imagine for a second that we were to ask the church that. What do you do? What is your mission? What is it you are about? Last week we mentioned that the response of the church in large part is to say, I'm faithful to Jesus Christ. That's who I am. What he called me to, I'm faithful to that. That is kind of the goal of the church, being faithful to Christ. And we might further describe it as, well, we make disciples, we engage in all of these things. But then, then there's this kind of follow-up question to that. It's not what you do, but like, what are your interests? Now think about that for a second. What are your interests? They're asking not things that you're interested in. You're, you know, it's not like I'm going to start detailing, well, ancient Sumerian history fascinates me. You know, it's, it's not like they're looking for those specifics in that degree of detail. What they're asking is, what are the things that you do? The things that you practice, that you enjoy, the things that you consider important in your life. So for me, I might answer, well, I, I, I'm very passionate about coffee. I love mystery science theater and bad movies. I love theology. I love dipping into history. I, I like looking at comparative religions. There's a lot of things out there that fascinate me that I'm engaged in that I make practices of. But what about the church? How would the church answer that question? What are the practices of the church? This is what we're going to look into today. Let's begin, though, with a word of prayer. Our Lord and God, we come before you, and I, I just want to thank you for the believers who managed to turn out today, for those who are watching online right now. Father, we pray your blessing on the whole of this community. Lord, as we gather right now, we, we say to you that we want to hear and understand 
So we want to hear from your word, God, and we want the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to change who we are because we're hearing the word. Master, I pray your blessing on this message. Again, Father, I, I ask as I often do, speak through and past me so that we understand what is happening when we get together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your church, your ecclesia, your called out ones. Thank you for this family. It's in your most precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Religion and relationship. Religion and relationship. Over the years, I've had the occasion to encounter quite a few skeptics, people who are skeptical of Christianity, people who we might look at and say they are outright hostile to the Christian faith. Not unusual for such folks to paint with a broad brush as they describe how incredibly crazy and unbalanced you guys are, right? You're, you're crazy, you're insane people, you're attached to this ancient religious ideology. And when these sentiments are spilling out, the word religion, as it even comes out them, come, it comes out with like venom. It's almost like it's spat. Have you been in one of those conversations before? The Lord has seen fit to put me in quite a few of them. When, when I detect such loathing for religion, when I notice that somebody has that much hatred for religion, I will often remark something to the effect of this, that Christ, too, was no fan of mindless religion. Jesus Christ did not seem to favor religion for religion's sake. He was not a fan. But Christ never advocated for thoughtless religion, did he? You don't see that in what he tells us to do. So th this kind of begs the question for me. Is religion okay? Is religion good? Did Christ want us to engage in some religious practice, some religious engagement? Well, we better start by dealing with the word. What is religion? What is religion? First of all, let me say this. Religion is a word with a lot of baggage. A lot of baggage. People think of all sorts of things when they hear the word religion. They do so because maybe they've got experiences, good or bad, with a church or or a fellowship of believers from some sort. Sometimes they've got experiences with pretty wicked religious groups. Not uncommon for people to come out of a religious um, experience and really disdain religion because they were burnt very badly. Sometimes it's just their imagination. It's what they think of when they think of religion that causes them to feel a bit of disdain. I, I would guess many of you probably feel warm and fuzzy feelings when you at least think about the church. Do we have an amen? Good. Some of you are like, <laughs> no, no, all of you love it, I'm sure. Uh, from snake handling to bingo games, from preachers who unnecessarily extend their vowels <laughs> to priests wearing robes and speaking in a monotone fashion or maybe speaking in dead languages. Some people, when they think of religion, think of orphanages, and other people, when they think of religion, think of planes flying into buildings, Right? Religion is a word with a lot of baggage. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens used to say this. He said, religion poisons everything. Really? Everything? Religion poisons everything? Sometimes you'll hear Christians just avoiding the word altogether or maybe disdaining the word altogether because of all this baggage. Oftentimes you'll hear people say this, and, and raise your hand if you've heard this before. I'm not into organized religion. Have you heard that? Okay, I'm not into organized religion, which makes you wonder, well, what are you into? Are you into disorganized religion? Do you just like it to be crazy, crazy, crazy all the time? Is that what you want? 
And the answer is no. I mean, that's not what they're looking for. When they say, I don't, I'm not into organized religion, they're saying one thing in particular. I don't like the church. I don't like the church. Anytime people gather together and think they can proclaim anything to me on God's behalf, that's what I don't like. The problem with that mindset, if, I mean, that might seem reasonable to you when you first hear it, but I want you to think about this. I want you to think about talking to a husband who dearly loves his wife and going, I like you, but man, I hate your wife. I, I enjoy you. I'm okay being around you. I'm okay listening to you, but your wife opens her mouth and I just want to hit her. Do you think Jesus is pleased with somebody who says, I do not like organized religion? Somebody who says they care about him but rejects the church? The answer to that is no. It's very clear in scriptures that that is not the case. Baggage aside, all the verbal baggage aside, do you know what religion is? Here's a very simple definition of religion. This kind of covers the major bases. Religion is a concept of sacred and profane. It's a concept of holy, things that are good and right and set apart for a particular purpose, and things that are ordinary. Did Jesus give us such a concept? I think that he did. A second way to understand religion is as a set of practices. A set of practices. It's things that we do. Now, it's clear that there are a lot of people throughout world history who have done religious practices that are no good. Amen? But is it possible that there are practices that are right and righteous and ought to be employed? I think that it is. Religion and relationship. We hate religion. We go out of our way to talk about it negatively a lot of times in the church. Um, I've, I've got a sign that should be coming up on the back here in just a moment that actually has the, I, this, this phrase, and you've heard this phrase. I've said this phrase numerous times. Christianity is not about religion, but about relationship, right? Christianity is not about religion, but about relationship. I've said that. I've, I've taught that. But it's not entirely true without qualifications, now, let me explain what I mean here. I unequivocally affirm that a person who does not have a relationship with Jesus, any religion they engage in is absolutely worthless. It is empty, or it is probably even destructive. Without the relationship with Christ, religion is nothing. It means nothing. Religion without relationship is worthless. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I believe there are too many practitioners in the church who are not believers. I believe there are too many practitioners in the church who are not believers. People who come in, they engage in religion, but they don't really believe in the God behind it. They don't have the relationship. Now, Jesus makes clear from his interactions with the scribes and Pharisees what he thought about keeping rules for the sake of keeping rules. He's not a fan of that flavor of religion. And I think uh, what happens typically is many of us as Christians, what we're saying when we say... Christianity is about relationship and not about religion. What we're saying is it's by the relationship that we are ransomed. Amen? It is by the relationship that we are sanctified. That is, we're being made holy by the relationship, not by our religious practices. And that's absolutely right. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is addressing Titus. Here's what he says. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Let's begin at verse 5. 
He saved us, that is Jesus. He saved us not on the basis of deeds. If you've got your Bibles, underline that phrase. Not on the basis of deeds. How are you not saved? Not on the basis of deeds. We're not saved on the basis of deeds. It's not because of works. But look at this next phrase. Which we did in righteousness. Underline that phrase. Because what he's saying here is it's not, it's not the empty religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees we're talking about. He's talking about religious practices that we engage in that are good and right before God. In other words, he's saying you're saved, but it's not because of what you're doing. Just be clear. You are saved, but it's not because of the good things that you are doing. Then he follows up. But in accordance with his mercy or pity, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The scriptures are absolutely clear in this regard. We are not saved by religion. But does that mean the church of Jesus Christ has no sacred or meaningful practices? Let me say again, religion without relationship is worthless. Amen? But let me follow that up by saying relation, or, uh, relationship without religion is disobedience. Relationship without religion is disobedience. Let me explain. Religion, by most definitions, again, qualifies as these two things. It's first some view of the cosmos being separated in the sacred and the profane. And secondly, religion contains some practices, some regular activities or engagements that we partake in. They fit the category of sacred. So then, if we want to know whether religion, by that definition, ought to be part of church life, we need to ask this question. Did Jesus convey teachings intended to direct us in our understanding of what is sacred? You've already said... Yes, Jesus definitely told us what was sacred, what was holy. And did Jesus desire for his church to engage in regular practices? The answer is yes, absolutely. Can we all say that together? Yes? Okay. All right. The answer to those questions would be yes and yes. Listen to how Paul continues his statement to Titus in verse 8. Remember, he just said, it's the, it's the relationship that saves you. It's not about even your righteous practices. But look at what he says in verse 8. This statement is trustworthy, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. In other words, the religious practices and actions are still important. They don't save you, but they're absolutely fundamentally part of who the church is. Amen? These things are good and beneficial for people. The desire to see the world as Jesus does and to engage in the practices to which he called us could accurately be described as religious observance. In our effort to emphasize the relationship, we've got to be careful not to discard the idea that teachings and practices are integral to what happens in the church. The body of Christ was made for practices. Let's talk about some of those practices, shall we? Yes, we shall. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, if you're familiar with the word, you know that the church gets its origin in the second chapter of Acts. This is the emergence of the church. And so we're going to hone in on a couple key verses that help us to understand what the church is to be about. Acts chapter 2. We're getting a description here of the earliest church. And when I say earliest church, I mean the church in its first days and weeks and months of existence. That's what we're looking at today. 
We are a community of practices. When we gather together as the called out ones, the ecclesia, the people of God, his family, when we're called together, we do stuff. There's your theological truth for the day. The church, the church does stuff. We do. Now that's generally and historically what is known as religion or sacred practices. So let's turn our minds to these practices of the church. Let's spend some time here thinking about them. We're going to focus on some more than others uh, because, because of this. I preached about one of these fairly recently, and I'm going to be preaching in depth on some of these in weeks to come. Okay, so we're just going to look over several of these. Acts chapter 2, let's look at verse 41 and 42. If you've got a pen with you, get that handy. Get it ready to go. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, past tense, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, continually devoting themselves to those things. Let's first just begin by talking about baptism. Now, you remember we talked, if you've been here with us since I've been here, we talked about baptism back in late June, early July somewhere in that region. So if you want to know more about baptism or our views of baptism, uh, please regress a little bit online. Go watch the sermon named Divine Death. Um, having dealt with it recently, I want to just say a few things about baptism right now. I want to draw your attention to the way this is described in the book of Acts. Look at the, look at the phrasing in your Bible. Now remember, Peter has just preached a sermon and people said, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. And so he commands baptism. The next phrase is, approximately 3,000 were baptized that day. But look at the next phrase. That number of souls were added. What is this, common core math? <laughs> Adding souls? What is, what's happening here? That number of souls were added. Added to what? The answer is to the church. So baptism, among all the other things that it does, one of the key things that we see baptism functioning as in the New Testament scriptures is the introduction to the church. Baptism is not only an introduction to the church, but it is an introduction to the church. It's the way you step in and say, Jesus, I am part of your family. Jesus, I'm following you. I'm one of your disciples. 3,000 were added that day. Baptism was the initiation. It is a practice of the church. It's something we do. Amen? Now, baptism is generally a one-time practice, but look at this next phrase, how fascinating this phrase is. Continually devoted to, or they were in, engaged in continual devotion. If you've got your Bibles, underline that phrase. Continually devoting, more, more appropriately translated. The Greek here can also be rendered as follows. Continually adhering to, like sticking to. Or being steadfastly attentive to, like always attention focused on that thing. Or to give unremitting care to. It's the thing I care most about. I'm coming back going, what can I do with this? Or persevering in relationship to. I just keep going and keep going and keep going in relationship to this thing. To put a more modern sounding emphasis on this, we're talking about continual ongoing obsession with. They were obsessed with this. Now, what's important about this term, and the reason I told you to underline it, is in the Greek, there's sometimes a word that modifies other words. This word modifies every single thing that follows. 
So when we read this word, it is saying they were continually devoting themselves not just to the apostles' teaching, they were devoting themselves to that, but also they were continually devoting themselves to teaching, or to, I'm sorry, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to these things. They were obsessed with it. So, continually devoted, hang on to that. We're going to cycle this back into each term to emphasize here what the church is doing. The church was continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. That means the church was full of fanboys of the apostles' teaching. Everybody was way into it. They were crazy about it. They were excited about it. They were interested in everything Jesus had to say, everything the apostles could tell them about Jesus. That was the mindset. Now, notice, too, that this devotion is not to the apostles. It's not to the apostles. Remember last week, I said the, the, the church is not about a cult of personality. And it's amazing, these people, these amazing men of the faith, people who were working miracles, who were casting out demons, people who were experiencing prophecy from the living God, we're not reading that the people were devoted to them, but to their teachings. Why? Because the church is to be about the teachings of Jesus Christ, not an individual. From the origin of the church, this devotion was to the person of Christ, not to his appointed apostles. Now, this is important because the church almost instantly became bigger than the apostles can, could oversee. Remember, you got, you got uh, 12 apostles reduced to 11, add one. Matthias, they got another one, it's 12. But we've got 3,000 added on the first day. Now, that is a serious job. Amen? So they're immediately going out and teaching. These guys were probably teaching every single day of the week, most of every day of the week. And the church was just expanding. They didn't end at 3,000. The church just continued to expand at that stage of the game. So why is it important that we were engaged in the, the apostles' teaching? What, was, what is the apostles' teaching? This would have entailed the life of Christ. They told the story of Jesus over and over again. Most of them, by the way, had many of Jesus' teachings memorized. Because remember, this is an oral culture. So when they presented Jesus' teachings, they were presenting verbatim the thing they had memorized that he said. The apostles' authoritative discussion was also on practices of the church. Here's how we should behave and operate. The church offered directives on how to resolve problems. The church offered directives on what Christ's church was meant to be, or the, uh, the apostles did, rather. Much of this teaching was memorized, as I said, um, but many of these things were starting to be written down for the benefit of the church. In other words, if Peter showed up to your congregation, to your local gathering, and man, he only shows up once a week, there are a lot of people listening to every word he said and writing it down. And so these things began to be written down. This teaching has come down to us. Many of you are holding this teaching open in your lap right now. This is the apostles' teachings. It, they're the Gospels, the, the first four books of the New Testament, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts, it's the story of the first church. This is part of the apostles' teachings. Those letters, the epistles that were being sent around, that is part of the apostles' teachings. The book of Revelation, which is a prophetic category, an apocalyptic category, that was part of the apostles' teachings. We've got them combined in one convenient book. How awesome. Are you devoted to it? Are you obsessed with it? This is what we take away from this today. The church, as we gather every week, should be obsessed with the word. We should be targeting the apostles' teaching as we come in every day and going, what do I take away today? 
What has he got for me right now? And digging into it and loving it. This is why we emphasize teaching and preaching as part of this church. And we'll continue to do such. Because it was part of the first church. Now, individual scripture study, is that good? Yeah, we talked about that earlier this year. You better believe it's good. But there's something different about the collective study. I believe that as the church gathers, something different happens when we are here in obedience to Jesus Christ's teachings. That something profound happens when we open the word together and dig in together and amen or affirm it together. Can I hear an amen? We're not just continually devoted to the scriptures, though. Remember, continually devoted emphasizes all of the rest of this. We are continually devoted to fellowship. Continually devoted to fellowship. Hey, our memorization scripture for the month, I'm not going to test you because you have not been here. Yeah, yeah, I know. But this is just a call to action again. Put this on a refrigerator. Start reading this over and over. Get out, out loud in the house. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it on the dashboard of your car. Um, carve it into your leg. No, don't do that. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. Notice the term deeds. Activities. Now, the next verse is important. I want you to look at verse 25. Not abandoning our meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day is drawing near. Now, I, this is not an attack on people who have to watch your mom right now. Please understand that. But what I'm saying is that we need to gather as best you can, can if you're at home, home. but we need the purpose of the church to get together as a major function of what we do. We are not too lack of even together. We're talking about the fellowship, the companionship of God's family. To abandon this meeting is spiritually dangerous. To abandon the gathering is spiritually dangerous. I'm not just saying that as a theological truth. I'm saying that as an experiential truth. I have seen, let me say this literally, every person I know who has abandoned Jesus Christ and abandoned the Christian faith first stopped coming to church. And usually it takes a long time from that point, but at some stage of the game, they sever themselves from the church. The church family is meant to be a spiritual safeguard of those who are around you. John R. Rice, uh, minister of this past century, said this. I love this phrase. Listen to this. People go wrong in their fellowships before they go wrong in their doctrine. People go wrong in their fellowships before they go wrong in their doctrine. It's true that people who tend to abandon the church have done so uh, or will, who abandoned Jesus Christ will do so after leaving the church. But I also find sometimes people replace the fellowship that we're meant to have as believers with people who are outside of the faith who begin dragging them down and away. The church is something special. God's people hang out. Can you say that? God's people hang out. This is a scriptural, spiritual truth. When Jesus compared us to an animal, he compared us to sheep. I want to tell you a really cool story one of my friends told me. I had a friend who was working for a lab in downtown Cincinnati, and uh, he was dealing with different animals that were being experimented on. It was his job to take care of all the animals. And his boss came to him and said, I want you to order for us a sheep. Bring us a sheep. And so he went to order a sheep, but when he did, the person who was selling it said, you can't buy one sheep. And he said, why not? He said, because if you put a sheep by itself, it will scream until it can't make noise, 
and then it will literally go insane. It will scream till it can't make noise, and then it will literally go insane. He said they ordered two sheep, they brought them in, but as soon as they would take one out to be experimented on, they would just, I mean, both of them would just freak out because they were missing one another. And that's who the church is to be. If we're not around each other, we should just be screaming till we go insane. No, the, the indication is we are made to be together. The sheep is made for the flock, amen? This is who we are to be in Jesus Christ. God's people hang out. The Greek term used here for fellowship means social intimacy. It's not just we know each other, but we know each other deeply. We are community. We engage in communication. That is who the church is meant to be. God seems to like it when his kids hang out. Have you noticed that? You do too. You understand this. If you've had children, don't you love, as a parent, seeing your kids like loving each other and building one another up and encouraging each other and being kind to one another, being compassionate with one another, laughing with one another? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Amen. And listen, if you're, if you've, if you're on the other side of that and you've got kids who like hate each other and they won't talk and aren't communicating, doesn't that hurt your heart? Yeah. For God, it is very much the same thing. When he looks and he sees his family gathering together and fellowshipping with one another, God loves it. And we should love it. Andrew Murray said this, Our love of God is measured by our everyday fellowship and the love it displays. Our love of God is measured by our fellowship. In other words, as we spend time together, what we're saying is, I love you. We're expressing worship and glory to God as we love one another, his church, because we're being like Christ. God's people are together not just to hang out, but God's people are to be together in suffering. That's where our fellowship occurs. We're bound by the fellowship in good times, but probably more so by the fellowship we share as we're in the trenches together, as we're suffering in this life. I had a good friend in my office years ago who had been unemployed and he was in financial trouble for a time, and things were really, really rough in his life. And we would meet weekly, and we'd sit down, and uh, he and he and I and Todd would sit, and we'd pray together. After one particular bout of tearful prayer, his eyes still brimming with tears, he said this, what do people who don't have the church do? What do people who don't have the church do? Because there's something that is shared as we share through communal suffering that the world cannot get anywhere. I hope that when the tragedies of this life hit you, you have a congregation who knows you and loves you and shares your burdens in those moments. Amen? Now, I want to say this about fellowship. It's not just getting together for Bible studies. It's not just getting together for Bible studies. Now, it is getting together for Bible studies, but it's not just getting together for Bible studies. Where do we gather? We should gather at Fireside on a cool evening or see movies together. We should watch a game together. We should be shopping together, letting the kids play together, having breakfast together, doing jobs around the house together, calling for help when you're hurting, involving people from the church in your life. Allow them in. Go make yourself part of someone else's life in this congregation. Can I hear an amen? This, this congregation is already pretty good at that, but we can always do better. We're to be not just continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, not just continually devoted to fellowship, but continually devoted to the breaking of bread. And all God's people said, amen. Um, Pliny the elder was a Roman official, and he interrogated members of the church, probably through torture, to find out what these Christians were up to. And here's what he wrote. 
He said, here's, here's what these Christians do. On the appointed day, they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak to recite a hymn to Christ as God. And they bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked act, but to abstain from all fraud, theft, and adultery, never to break their word or deny a trust when called upon to honor it. After which it was their custom to depart and then to meet again for food. It was one of the goals and functions of the church to eat together. Now notice all those other things. This was all part of the worship. And then they would depart, and then they would get back together for fellowship over food. Our God, think about this, created the very concept of food. Like he he didn't have to make us creatures who eat. We could filter feed or something to that effect. But he created the idea of eating, and I suspect he did so knowing how central it would be in our fellowship fellowship aspects of our life that we would gather together. I have a great friend in the faith, Bev Nichols, who says it this way, we need to get our feet under the same table. Ah, oh, it's a great phrase. We, she would look at you, she'd hug you. We need to get our feet under the same table. Let's get together and eat. What a blessing it is for the church to gather to eat. There's something powerfully bonding about eating together. And the more regularly, the more profoundly bonding the, the meal seems to be. This is why Focus on the Family, by the way, says if, if you want to bond your family deeply, you should have one meal together a day, at least one meal where all of you sit around the table together. It makes a huge difference in the family experience. Perhaps this is what God had in mind when he made one of the central features of our gathering, if not the central feature of our gathering, the communion meal. Now, the earliest Christian gatherings contained a component called the agape feast, the love feast. And that was basically this, potluck. All right, so as the Christians gathered, they would get together and everybody brought food and they would have a feast every time they got together. Eventually, the gatherings got a little too large for that and so they narrowed it down to just the Passover, which would have been initially a part of the overall Lord's Supper. The agape meal, it was the Lord's Supper became kind of the central feature, one table with the elements on it. Now, this communion meal, you'll remember, uh, as David just told us, was bread and wine given new significance because Jesus Christ said, this is what you're to think about every time you partake about the, of these things from here on out. And so it became central in the larger church gathering. Robert Weber describes it this way. He's a, a, a Christian scholar. Believers were remembering the Last Supper just as the Jews remembered the Passover. Eventually, churches became too large to accommodate these shared meals, so a single table with the elements of bread and wine became the focus. Thus, the central act of Christian worship in the history of the church has always been the communion. It's gathering together, and it's focusing on Jesus Christ's death on our behalf, something we do every week. So what is communion? Well, that's a controversial discussion point in many churches, as Francis Chan recently found out when he stated something and a firestorm got whipped up of people going, no, it's not that, no, it's not this, no, it's, yes, it's this. And, and so things kind of got all crazy. Uh, let me just describe briefly the different views of communion. The Catholic view of communion is what's called transfiguration. They literally believe that the, the bread and the juice literally become Jesus' body and blood as soon as it goes into you. So it's kind of this divine cannibalism, like you're literally eating Jesus during the week. Now, this, this idea, when it emerged in the Catholic, Catholic Church, had all sorts of outworkings because of it. Um, they were, there were philosophers and theologians debating weird things, like at what point does it become Jesus' flesh? Because it doesn't taste like human flesh. So is it, it's not when I put it in my mouth. Is it when it's in my throat? Is it when it's in my stomach? Um, 
when I, when I go to the bathroom, is Jesus passing through my bowels? If a cracker drops on the ground and a mouse eats it, is he sanctified now? Has he been made holy, and is Jesus somehow in that mouse? And so while these are kind of maybe laughable discussions for most of us, for people who believe in, in that uh, transubstantiation, the transubstantiation theology, these are like live debates. Um, I believe that the idea of transubstantiation is based on a complete misunderstanding of John chapter 6. I'd be happy to go into that another time with you if you're interested. But John chapter 6, I don't believe, teaches uh, transubstantiation. Another view is consubstantiation. Con, transubstantiation is a transforming of the substance. Consubstantiation means with the substance. So Orthodox churches believe this. Many Protestant churches also believe this. The idea is when we take communion, God is with us. Jesus is with us in a profound way when that happens. So it's more than just symbolism. It is, it is a profound integrating and mingling with Jesus Christ that is going on. It's not that it's transforming in anything, but God is with us powerfully in that moment. The third view is that it is in symbolic or emblematic. In other words, these are just symbols. Jesus is not specially with us. This is just meant as a meditation device. All right, so if you want my personal opinion, and this is my personal opinion, it's somewhere between con and cons, uh, consubstantiation and uh, symbolic. I believe it might be somewhere in the mix there. But here's the good news. You don't have to know exactly what Jesus is doing through the meal. You know what you have to do? Practice it as he told us to do it. Practice it as he told us to engage in it. Our biggest goal when we get together for the communion meal is we want to meditate deeply on who Jesus was. We want to share that meal together. We want to take that meal together. It is, it is a good practice to just do it as he told us to do. Um, theologically speaking, Jesus is going to work all this stuff out in eternity, but we know what we're supposed to do. Amen? Amen. We are also continually, continually devoted to prayer. Continually devoted to prayer. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this in a few weeks. We're going to do this as a whole sermon in weeks to come. But I, I just want to point out something here really quickly. First of all, um, we're not talking about individual prayer. When we say that the church is continually devoted to prayer, we're talking about communal prayer. It's prayer when we get together. Now, is individual prayer important? But I want you to notice how often in the New Testament, when somebody would stand up in the body to preach, their pronouns were different. We come before you, Lord. We ask you, Lord Jesus, because it's not me. It's collectively us. It might seem a minor thing to you, but it is a big deal. The church praying together is part of what the body is to be obsessed about. Gather together. Speak to the Lord as a community. It is different than just speaking to the Lord alone. Well, let's close out by just quickly wrapping up with three questions. We have purposeful practices, amen? There are things we're meant to do in the church. They're functional. They're God-given. God has reasoning for all of them. We can see the reasoning if we pay attention. This is righteous religion. This is good things, good practices that we engage in. So why should we engage in these practices? Simple answer. Christ indicated that they were important. This is his church, Amen? Being baptized as demonstrated by him and commanded by him is his will. Amen? Being committed to his teachings is his desire. Amen? 
being actively loving and caring for one another as he commanded, fellowshipping together is his design and desire. Partaking in the communion as he called us to observe it is his command and his desire. Praying as he demonstrated to us and as he called us to do is his desire. The church who loves Jesus Christ faithfully engages in the practices he gave us. Justin Martyr, a Christian philosopher and apologist, wrote about the practices of the church more than 100 years after Jesus had ascended. And here's what he describes. Listen, I, I, I love this because it's the same thing we're doing today. The same thing that Jesus commanded 100 years later, we're still being practiced. The same thing we're up to today, with a few exceptions. Here's what he said. Um, there are two major parts of the service, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Now, here's what you need to know about this. The liturgy of the word included a worship service. Because we're not just singing hymns, we're learning and thinking about God. It's part of the liturgy of the word. But we didn't talk about worship today. We're going to do that next week. The liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Here's what he describes. The liturgy of the word consisted of lessons from the Old and New Testament, a sermon, prayers, and the hymns. The liturgy of the Eucharist, that is the communion meal, included a kiss of peace. Well, we haven't done that. I don't think that would be COVID-friendly. The offering of bread and wine um, and water, prayers of thanksgiving over the bread and wine, remembrance of Jesus' death, including the narrative of the institution of the Last Supper, and a command to continue it. Then an amen said by all the people. Amen. Amen, which means I agree or right on, or as you have said, so may it be in my life. Communion was then received, and then the reserved portions of the communion were taken by the deacons. What are the deacons? servants, and they were taken out to those members who couldn't be there. So they considered it so important that if you weren't there for the communion meal, they would grab it, and several people after the service would go out and they would deliver it. By the way, we can do that. You just have to let the elders know if you're at home that you need us to do that. We'd be happy to do that for you. So these are purposeful practices, and we would engage in them because Christ commanded it, because the faithful church does it. Now, how should we engage in these practices? Remember, religion without relationship is worthless. It's empty. It's vacuous. So we need to have the relationship. As we gather together, we need to be remembering, not only are we here with one another, not only are the called out ones gathering, but Christ is here with us. As we gather together, he is among us. He is present with us. The relationship is what makes this all significant. Beyond that, we need to be mindful. Think about what we're doing. Think about what we're saying. When we're singing songs, Don't just let those songs come out of your mouth without taking those ideas and making them a part of your mind, your mental worship. We do so with one another. How should we engage in these practices? Together. There's something awesome about the togetherness. It is part of God's plan for church life. When we take communion together, it is perfectly acceptable for you to not bow your head and get quiet. It is perfectly acceptable for you to look around the room and go, (laughs) <laughs> Cheers. How am I, and it, and it, seriously, part of the early communion feast was this gathering together where people were excited about what was going on, and it was a shared meal, oftentimes in the early centuries, and maybe we'll revisit this after the COVID thing is done, but you know, often in the first centuries, they would break bread and they'd hand it to one another, right? And, and it was more than just you know, the, the chiclet thing, <laughs> right? They're like, this is a meal? Why do we call this a meal? All right. We should engage in these practices mindfully and together with one another. Lastly, when should we engage in these practices? 
Acts answered that question for us. Remember what Acts said in chapter 2, continually devoted, obsessed with, excited about. This is righteous religion. We are a community of practices. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord and God, thank you so much for not just giving us the church, but establishing activities for the church, things we could do each and every week that remind us of you, that get us excited about following you, that help us to understand you more, that help us appreciate one another more, that bind us together. Lord, we praise you for the practices, the religion that you instituted. We love you, O God. Amen.